Amen. Go ahead and get two places in your Bible. Get Genesis 2 and Hebrews 13. Genesis 2 and Hebrews 13. Uh, welcome to Marriage 101 class. Um, I, I think we're maybe on week 6 or 7 out of the 14 that I uh, have planned. And um, this is certainly, uh, for me, the most difficult lesson to teach, uh, which probably means for you it's uh, the most difficult lesson to hear. Uh but that's the purpose of this class, is to be able to talk about some things that uh, are difficult to talk about, actually impossible to talk about in uh, a crowd that's different than this. Uh, and so uh, we're going to do that, because if we didn't cover this subject, it would not be a, a very good uh, marriage uh, class because this is a very important subject to husbands and, and wives. Uh, again, congratulations on being here and investing in your marriage. Uh, that is the most important earthly relationship we have. Uh, people here in all different kinds of circumstances between uh, folks who are getting ready to be married to people who are just married to people who have been married a little bit of, uh, a while, but e either way, we do have this in common. Uh, we want to make our marriages better, and uh, God does intend our marriages to be good. Uh, it's supposed to be a picture of uh, Christ and his relationship with the church. And when it's done right, marriage is a wonderful uh, institution. Before we get to our lesson today, I want to just review the same nine things I start with every week. Because, again, I want to plant them deeply in your heart and mind. Number one, nothing can be taken back. That's been done to this point. Uh, what's done is done. Number two, all that any of us can hope to change is today and tomorrow. Uh, today and tomorrow can change. Uh, number three, if you're struggling, you didn't get where you are in a day, uh, which means you won't get out in a day or a week or a month. But by the grace of God, you can uh, get out. Uh, number four, you can only control one person in this world. And so I ask that when you sit in this class and when you uh, handle things in your house, that you focus on controlling the one person you can control in the world. And anybody here uh, who's been married more than 60 seconds knows that that one person you can, can't control is your spouse. Uh, it is so hard to be focused on fixing ourselves. Uh, but it is always the case that when we do better, uh, we put our spouse in the best possible scenario for them to make better choices. Uh, number five, there's always hope as long as God is involved. Uh, God is love. If you decide you never loved, you can begin to love. If you don't love enough, you can love more. Uh, if you don't love them anymore, you can love again. Uh, God is love. Someone said a perfect marriage is just two imperfect people who refuse to give up on each other. Somebody said that a happy marriage isn't so much how compatible you are, but how well you deal with your incompatibilities. God is love. Uh, number six, no one is assured to have a great marriage if you were raised in a great home. You can fail. Number seven, no one is destined to repeat the home in which you were raised if it was bad. You can succeed. Number eight, the marriage you're in now is the marriage you're supposed to be working on. And lastly, number nine, the person to whom you're married is the person to whom you're supposed to be married. And I know I say this every week, but it is very normal for a marriage to go through some kind of a season where you wonder if you married the right person. The person you're married to now is the person to whom you're supposed to be married. 
Uh, and now today is going to be a little bit different. Normally we begin this class off with me answering questions you turned in, and you should have a piece of paper at the end of the class. Uh, like always, just ask that uh, everybody write something on there. I, I don't care if you write what's for lunch or an X or a smiley face, uh, but I want everybody to have an opportunity to turn in anonymous questions, and normally we begin our class answering those questions, but because our subject matter is so unusual uh, in a church setting today and, and so important, uh, I'm not going to take any time uh, for questions. Uh, today we'll pick that back up next week. You should have two places in your Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 2, Hebrews 13. Uh, Genesis 2, Hebrews 13, get two different spots uh, in your Bible, Genesis 2 and Hebrews um, 13. And uh, our thought today is just really called to become one flesh, to become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. It says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And they shall be one flesh, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Remember, we talked about uh, these wedding vows and how Matthew 19 attributes those words that Adam said to God, and Genesis attributes them to Adam. I'm not going to just jump up and down and say it so, but it certainly seems as if God said something and then Adam repeated something and uh, Eve did the same kind of thing. And that was the first marriage ceremony. And God planned uh, a special and unique physical relationship between a husband and wife. Did you notice in verse 25 it says they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed? Now, our culture has make it, made nakedness a public thing. I mean, the scriptures teach public modesty. But between a husband and wife, uh, there's no shame in nakedness. And notice also, as a part of that wedding vow, in verse 24, it says, And they shall be one flesh. Now, that phrase, one flesh, occurs seven times uh, in the Bible. It's pretty significant that one of those is in the first wedding ceremony, and six of those seven are all related to a husband and his wife, and the seventh of the seven is from the New Testament, and it has to do with a man being physically joined with a harlot who was not his wife. Now, in the marriage ceremony and a commitment before God, a man and a woman become one before God spiritually, and you're joined for life. Uh, in the sexual union of a man and a woman, they become one flesh, whether they're married or not. But like we talked about in the first week, marriage in God's eyes is much more than simply physical oneness. Uh, God in himself started the institution of marriage, marriages of God. We spent time talking about that. And God himself, we see here, designed sex as a part of a healthy marriage relationship between a husband and his wife. Listen to me. Sex is not the invention of Satan. It is not an invention of a twisted culture. Uh, sex is a part of God's design for our marriages. Go back in your Bible to Hebrews 13 if you don't have it already. 
Uh, notice what Hebrews chapter 13 says in, in verse 4. It says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Uh, now, God did not intend to, sex, to have sex be the dominant subject of a culture and public, but he did intend it to be privately a blessing to husbands and wives. Notice it is the marriage bed that is undefiled. And notice those who are judged, who are those who misuse that, whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Now, when it comes to this issue of sex, the Bible uh, is a very subtle book as far as how it deals with this subject. Uh, when it comes to violence, the, the Bible is actually fairly graphic. Now, I wouldn't perf purposely, personally say that reading about violence is the same as looking at, at, at violence, but it's very clear, though, that God doesn't look at violence that he uh, is pretty graphic about. I mean, all the way from I mean, David cutting the head off of Goliath and carrying it around to uh, lots of other things that are of a similar nature. But when it comes to uh, sex, the Bible uh, is very subtle about it. Uh, with the exception of the book of Song of, Song of Solomon, anyway. Um, the Bible, while it is subtle about the issue of human sexuality, it does have a lot to say about it. The seventh of the ten most basic moral commandments in Exodus 20.14 uh, has to do with sex outside the boundary of marriage. God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, in the Old Testament moral law that God gave his people, uh, homosexuality, adultery, rape, and bestiality, they were all punished by the death penalty. God established that government and made those rules. Uh, by the way, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was born of Mary when she was a virgin. Even though she was already engaged and had already found the man with whom she was going to spend her whole life. Uh, 1 Corinthians says flee fornication. Ephesians says that uh, fornication should not be once named among us as become a saint. And if you don't know what the word fornication is, fornication is a general word that has to do with immorality. Adultery is a segment of fornication. That is cheating on your spouse. Fornication is any sexual sin outside the boundary of marriage. Um, Proverbs tells a husband to be satisfied with your wife's body and, quote, ravished always with the physical affection of your own wife. Sex is not a dirty act. It originated with God, and it was designed by God for a husband and his wife. Uh, and if you don't think that's so, you've got to read the book of Song of Solomon. It is basically a series of romantic and sensual encounters between a husband and wife. I, I get that there's symbolism behind it all. I, I get that. But that doesn't take away from the fact that that's what the book uses as symbolism. Uh, I'm told, and it's silliness to me, that the Jews didn't allow young males to read that book until they were 30. But, you know, that's pretty typical of Jewish people abusing um, some of the things of God. That's where Phariseeism uh, came from. Uh, because the scriptures teach that sex inside the boundary of marriage was designed by God to be a blessing to both a husband and a wife. Now, while the Bible is very detailed and explicit at times about violence, 
violence. As I said before, in sexual matters, it's different. Here's an example. Uh, Genesis 4.1 says, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. Uh, 1 Samuel 1.19, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. See, this is not done this way to imply that uh, a sexual relationship between a husband and wife is bad. Uh, it's intended to teach us and reinforce the fact that it's supposed to be private. And by the way, this isn't a parenting class. Uh, the Lord tarries, I'll, I'll do that next summer. But I suggest that as parents, you handle uh, violence and sexuality with your ch children in keeping with the way the scriptures do so. And I just want to remind everybody, before we really get into this, is that God's plan for life is never a plan that's designed to oppress people. I mean, anybody here who's a parent, all you did when you made rules for your children was look and see things that your children did not yet see and understand and say, do you know what? If you do that, it's going to hurt you. You don't get it, so I'm going to tell you not to do it. And understand that when God made rules for us, the crowning jewel of his creation, he did not do things the way he did to ruin man's fun or to oppress man or keep man from anything that's good for us. When God made his rules, like any loving parent, he did them to keep us from things that ultimately somehow damage our future or our relationship with him. God wants us to have a fulfilled life. And he, more than anyone, understands that sin always brings pain. Sin always brings pain. And so God wasn't trying to ruin anyone's fun when he designed sex to be after marriage and exclusive to a husband and his wife. I mean, think about this. If... If you've lived very long, you, you, you know this to be true. A life of immorality and rebellion against God in, in the area of sexuality and, and purity, uh, it brings a threat of sexually transmitted diseases. It causes many children to start life without a mom and dad who are together and who love each other. It causes women to feel used. opens a door for sexual abuse and the perversion that occurs in our society. Uh, immorality and rebellion against God in the area of sexuality, it enables men to continue in their immaturity and failure to become responsible because they're getting the advantages of marriage without the responsibility to care for and love a wife. Listen to this. It takes us a closer step to being more like an animal who have no morals and no conscience. And perhaps worst of all, it separates us from a holy God who created us and desires for us to be in a close relationship with him. We just read it in Hebrews 13, 4, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. God knew what he was doing when he designed sex to remain within the boundary of marriage. Now, keeping sex within the boundary of marriage, that is something that men and women of all ages and all cultures have struggled to maintain. 
And Satan for, great, for centuries has greatly used this to defile God's greatest creation and hurt the relationship that our Creator wants with His children. Uh, I know you don't read the Satanic Bible, uh, but we know the Scriptures from God has ten basic moral commandments. And it's no surprise that Anton LaVey, who wrote the Satanic Bible in the 1960s, um, instead of Ten Commandments, it has nine suggestions. And here's number one. Satan represents indulgence rather than abstinence. And it is very clear that it is the message of our culture and Satan himself, indulge your desires no matter what they are, no matter where you want to, do what you want. And God, who is looking out for us as a loving father, has asked us instead to keep those desires within the boundary of our marriage. Now the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife was started by God and ordained by God to be good. In fact, human sexuality is different from all the other animals. I don't know if you like to watch nature shows. I love to watch nature shows. But one of the big differences is, for the most part, uh, animals only become interested when a female's ovulating. That's pretty different. Um, I also understand that uh, humankind, they're really the only creatures who have face-to-face -face intimacy. See, see uh, because uh, in almost every case, a, a, a female does not get pregnant every time this happens. I mean, it's very, very obvious that God designed this whole thing to be much more than uh, a means of reproducing ourselves. This is a part of a healthy marriage and a part of an intimate relationship that a husband and wife have to each other. It's a big issue in our culture. And sadly, it's mostly ignored in our churches because of cultural abuses, because of the weaknesses that we have, and because of our own failures. About half of you in the survey you turned in had strong negative feelings about sexual issues in your marriage, somewhere between 5 and 10. That being said, about 75% of you, though, said you have a good physical relationship with your spouse, somewhere between 5 and 10. Our physical relationship with our spouse is one of the four key areas of life over which conflict in our home occurs. You will have conflict over this issue. Period. Not if. It's when. You will have conflict over this issue. And at, at the end of class, I've got... Um, there should be one copy of this for everybody. It's from a book called The Act of Marriage. And these folks that do um, marriage seminars, they did an official survey. There's like 1,700 men and 1,700 women. And basically they ask them all kinds of questions about their private life. And if you're curious... Uh, about that, uh, there's a copy of it up here. When you turn in your question, uh, just grab one for you, and I recommend you get it. And I, I didn't take all the time to print them up and collate them so that I could just take them out of here. Grab one of them, and um, I want to help you. And so we're going to get into uh, what is more our lesson then is uh, suggestions for having a healthy sex life in your marriage.
Number one, recognize that sex within the boundary of marriage is ordained of God to be enjoyable and promote closeness and intimacy. Um, and if you don't believe that, I, I challenge you this week, just, just read Song of Solomon. And, I mean, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable standing here reading it to you. And that's in the Word of God. See, because of our culture, and in many cases our past, some people have a tough time thinking about sex as being healthy and good. Listen to me, thinking wrongly about the physical relationship between a husband and wife is a major obstacle to a good marriage. It is not just okay. It is designed by God to be an important aspect of a healthy marriage. Uh, several years ago, and this is the seventh time I've, I've taught this class, somebody turned in the question, how can you want to have sex? Uh, the beginning of that answer is starts with an attitude change. Because if your attitude is wrong about this, nothing's going to be right about this. Sex is not something that's dirty or forbidden, uh, and there's no reason to have any guilty feelings whatsoever within the boundaries of marriage. It is not some low-priority duty and drudgery that God designed for you to give in to after you're badgered enough. It is a gift of God. And it is intended for pleasure and intimacy in your most important earthly relationship. Now sometimes as Christian people, Christians struggle with this attitude issue because if you're a Christian as a young adult, what you're doing is you are fighting off these desires. And then all of a sudden you get in a, your marriage where you're supposed to give in to these desires. And that's not an easy transition to make all the time. And a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, they were sexually active before marriage. And what happens is that brings some level of guilt into your bedroom after marriage. Now, uh, on your surveys, about one-fourth of you who turned in a survey remain morally pure until your wedding night. Uh, by the way, that's not good. Uh, that's about the same percentage as... Two years ago when I did the survey and four years ago in the survey. And again, I just say sexual activity before marriage causes regret and guilt in the back of your mind that you have to deal with. And some people, quite frankly, when they were growing up, they were told that sex was wrong and sex was bad and sex was dirty. Instead of having a more wise parent teach them that sex is private and sex is good within the boundaries of marriage. Listen, there's a big difference in the mind of someone who grows up all their life being told it's wrong and dirty and bad and in the mind of someone who's been told all their life, hey, this is good. It's designed for the boundaries of marriage. And I know this is not a parenting class, but I plead with those of you who have children at home and are old enough to begin to deal with these issues, please teach them rightly about this. Don't give them some complex that they're going to have to deal with when they become a married adult. Teach them rightly about it. Here's a basic moral standard. If you want to teach your children to be morally pure, I 100% guarantee you, if they will keep this basic moral standard, they will walk down their wedding aisle pure. Here it is. Never be alone except in public until after you're married. It's a very simple thing. 
You can have all the private, intimate conversation you want to have, uh, sitting in a park with people around, being at the restaurant table with just you two. You can have all the real privacy you want and not be tempted to go down a road that's going to lead you somewhere that you will later regret. I would suggest teaching your children that. Now, if you want to teach them a higher standard than that, I, I know people, they don't let their kids even go on dates unless there's another adult with them. I mean, if you want to do that, do that. I'm just saying that basic moral standard will keep everyone morally pure. Go to in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. We'll get to number 2. How can we have a healthy physical relationship as husbands and wives? We need to first change our attitude about it. I mean, understand that God designed it to be good and within the boundary of marriage. Here's number two, how to have a healthy physical relationship with your spouse. Here's number two, close up the gates of your sexual attraction to all others with the exception of your, of your spouse. Close off the gates of your sexual attraction to all others with the exception of your spouse. Notice what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, but I say unto you, and, and by the way, notice Jesus is going to raise the standard. Anybody who tells you that living under grace, everything is looser, they're, they're, they're dumb. Under grace and the full knowledge of the New Testament and what our God did for us, God expects more. And he's going to raise the standard of what it meant to be physically immoral and commit adultery to what goes on in our heart and mind. Jesus says in verse 28, I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. See, I hope you understand true exclusivity has to do with more than just our body. It affects our imagination, our heart, our, our mind. That, that, that's why pornography, among other reasons, is, is, is sinful. Um, and that's true for emotional pornography as well. Uh, somebody in a previous year turned in a, a question, said, I don't find my wife attractive anymore. Here's the answer to that. If you had all the other gates to your attraction closed, I guarantee you, you would be attracted to your wife. Close all gates. By the way, that's why a lot of women have the unanswered question of, of why oh, you feel like your husband doesn't live up emotionally to such and so. Because you have not closed all the gates to your attraction to anybody other than your spouse. I mean, understand those thoughts are going to come in everybody's mind, and you have to just decide, do you know what? That's not a good thought. I'm not going to let it in there. No way, no how, no. By the way, this is the reason the Bible says flee fornication in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee youthful lusts in 2 Timothy 2.22. God could have said fight those things. There are other things he said fight. But this is one of those things we need to flee. And understand that before anybody ever commits some physical act of adultery, long, long before that, there were people who allowed themselves emotionally or sexually attracted to someone other than their spouse. In fact, that might be you here today. Stop. For Christ's sake. Stop. For the sake of your home. 
Listen, things will change for good in your home when you only allow yourself physical and emotional attraction to your spouse. Here's number three. Make your bedroom sacred and private. (laughs) Unfortunately, over the years, I I know most of you won't listen to this. Uh, I mean, I just know that from talking to people. Uh, Don't let the kids sleep in your bed. I'm not talking about you have a crib in there for a newborn for a few months. Uh, Listen, the marriage bed is undefiled. God made it a sacred place. Uh, If your kid is sick, go sleep where they are. Make your marriage bed a special place. Um, Make sure you have a good lock on your door from the inside. Teach your children to knock. And I guess this is a private story, but one of our children, when they were a teenager, got the idea that they thought it would be funny when our bedroom door was locked to just come charging in. And one of the times when they just come charging in, I said, you realize if you do that, one of these times you're going to see something you don't want to see. You know what? They didn't come in anymore. Listen, a, 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 a husband and wife's relationship, Sandra, it's private. And you will help yourself when you feel more comfortable that no one's going to come barging in. Uh, number four, go in your Bible to 1 Corinthians number 7. 1 Corinthians 7. It's talking about ways to have a healthy physical relationship with our spouse. For those of you who think this is inappropriate in the church, you've got your head in the sand. Uh, this is in the book, and it is very important to a healthy marriage. There are people, I'm sure, all over this room and all over who will be here in this congregation this morning who are extremely frustrated and angry, and this is the thing that's really driving them nuts. And then you think it's not supposed to be discussed? Here's number four. Fight the enemy of selfishness in your bedroom. By the way, just like every other area of marriage. So what do you mean? I'm talking about lack of effort with your personal hygiene when you go to bed. Fix your breath. Take care of yourself. Stop being selfish and acting like that's just about you. So what do you mean? Uh, I'm talking about lack of effort expressing affection at non-sexual times. Uh, Every couple here, and especially every man, you need to be expressing affection towards your wife when there's no way sex can be involved. Uh, I'm talking about just randomly she's in the kitchen, the kids are in the kitchen, you just come up behind her, kiss her on the neck, give her a pat on the tush. So so whenever she someday says to you, this is all you want me for, you know that you've been affectionate to her at other times. That's a part of not being selfish. By the way, affection is a choice. Now I get that some of us are more naturally affectionate, uh, displaying uh, what's in our heart, uh, but every one of us can choose to be more affectionate. Uh, The enemy of selfishness, lack of effort. In the sexual aspect of your marriage. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, 
It's good for a man not to touch a woman. By the way, before we go on, that's an abused verse. Some people will use that as an excuse to say, well, you should never touch, touch anybody. A guy should never touch a girl. No, the context of this is sexual things. And Jesus uh, grabbed a live girl by the hand. <laughs> okay? There's a difference in a touch that has nothing to do with sex and a sexual touch. And that's what it's talking about in this context. He says, it's good for you not to do that. He said, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except that be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. By the way, that's quite clear that husbands and wives should do everything they can to not say no. Now, that doesn't mean that there are not times when you need to say no and that you shouldn't uh, be fine with no. That's not what I'm implying. Uh, but what that clearly says is that husbands and wives need to do everything they can to not hold back or deprive their partner. Your sex life is really not about you. See, what that means in practical terms, 90% of the time a husband wants more physical affection than the wife. Not always, but 90% of the time. What that means is that she's going to have to be involved in this more than she really wants to, and he needs to be involved less. That's what it means to not be selfish. See, if, in the vast majority of cases, I mean almost never, do the two people always want to be together at the same time, the same frequency. That, that almost never happens. But you see, when you love each other and you're committed to stay together, you know what? One person learns to be fine with less than they really prefer this, and the other person learns to be fine with more than they really prefer. Your sex life is not about you. Uh... Fight the enemy of selfishness. I'm talking about lack of effort to make sure your spouse has their needs met. Uh, by the way, and, and I'm not trying to be crude, this is an area where husbands oftentimes are thoughtless, selfish, and unconcerned about the needs of their wife. Because very often a wife needs more time and she needs intimate conversation more than her husband wants to give. Did you ever think that maybe God designed us to be this way because it's good for you to have intimate conversation and maybe good for her to be physically intimate? Maybe we have a heavenly father who understands how he designs us and the combination of the way we're wired actually is a good combination. Never make comments about your spouse's sexuality in public for humor. Never discuss private sexual matters with someone without gaining the permission of your spouse before doing so. Never discuss private sexual matters with someone of the opposite gender unless your spouse is there. I, I, I'm telling you, th this stuff, it goes on all the time. And you wonder, wonder why marriages are in trouble? It's people being careless with this kind of stuff. Here's number five. What do I need to do to have a healthy physical relationship with my spouse. Have realistic expectations for your sex life. 
Now you'll read in that particular study that uh, both married couples are, tend to have more happiness in this area than single people who are sexually active. And what you'll learn in that survey also is that Christian couples have more happiness and satisfaction in a physical area of their life than non-Christian couples, which doesn't surprise anybody who understands why God said what God said. I mean, but understand, most men have their ideas of what should go on in the bedroom and how your wife should respond. You have that from pornography. And you have that by watching actresses on, on movies and television shows. And the reality of it is, that's not reality. A lot of women have their expectations from romance movies and romance novels. And, 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 and you feel like, wow, if there's not, uh, if you haven't bought me dinner and you don't have a candle setting, then it's not on. You, you know what? That, that's an unrealistic expectation. Reality is always different from imagination. And to be honest with you, you know, reality, when it's God's reality, is better. Uh, our second uh, lesson in this class was on expectations. Do you remember that lesson? We talked about how important it was to have the right expectations because our expectations have the power either to make us happy or unhappy with the same thing. Remember talking about that? And do you remember how we concluded that lesson on expectations? Never expect your spouse to be another one of you. Do you remember talking about that? Uh, there's probably no area of life where your expectations will hurt you more than if you expect your spouse to be another one of you. I mean, there's probably some men in here and you wonder why uh, your wife is unaffected when you walk around in a towel. <laughs> you, you know, God didn't wire us the same way. Have you ever tried to understand your spouse's sexuality? To understand why he or she is different from you? See, the average man uh, thinks her wife is a refrigerator because she's not like him, and the average wife thinks her husband's an animal because he's not like her. And, and I realize that it's not always the case, but I, I'm, I'm just saying 90% of the time, and, and it's all because we've never made any effort to understand uh, our spouse. Number six, read a couple of books to become more knowledgeable about your own body, your spouse's body within the boundary of marriage. Uh, it's very rare when parents have good conversations with their children about this. And uh, if you can't have a conversation with children about this, you ought to at least recommend a couple good books. Whenever I uh, do premarital counseling, I recommend a couple books. We've got a couple in our uh, bookstore. They have plastic wrap around them. Uh, I recommend uh, both of those books. One is called Sheet Music. Uh, one is called Intended for Pleasure. They're both available on Amazon.com. If you really want to face uh, what male sexuality is, uh, unyielded to Christ, uh, read um, Every Man's Battle. <laughs> uh, there's another book called Every Woman's Battle. I read it. i, I got to confess I didn't understand it. Just like, ladies, when you read that book, Every Man's Battle, you say, ah! But, but see, if you make no effort to understand why your spouse is different from you, you you're, you're, you're not helping yourself. Uh, and lastly, number seven, a healthy sex life will not fix all the problems in your marriage or resolve every conflict, but it does help every marriage. 
Now, I get it. The average guy thinks it fixes everything. I, I get that. Um, it doesn't fix everything, but it does really help your relationship. Some ladies think it's an unimportant desire to be given to only after you've been badgered enough, like I said earlier. And that's not right either. The fact of the matter is God made sex to be a healthy expression of our love for one another and a joy we share together. God made it to be so personal and private that it promotes intimacy and conversation that most of us would otherwise avoid. A good marriage is hard work, especially in the early years or, or later on if you're trying to change some things. I, I'm just here to say it's worth it. My, my wife is sitting back there. Uh, listen, I am happily married. I've told you before I would marry the same woman again. I, uh, if you had the marriage I had, I, I, I would say you can have it. I, I really am. I'm happy, and I, and I think she is too. And, and that's not because we're special. We're, we're not. We're just sinners saved by grace. Listen, God wants your home to be right. And it's pretty obvious as we go through all these things that without Christ in your life, you're just never going to fight selfishness in your life like you need to in this area and every other one. And so uh, if you don't know the Lord, trust him. Uh, next week we'll begin three weeks of talking about fair fighting. And you guys have turned in a lot of questions about that. And then we obviously handle questions from, from this subject as well. So everybody, uh, turn in something on that paper. Uh, I don't care if you put an X or a smiley face or a real question. And just fold them and set them up there and grab one of those uh, surveys.